Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Good morning, Saints Hill. Really good to see you guys. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If I didn't work at a church, I'd come to this church. And I really mean that, Um, even just being in prayer with you guys this morning, the DNA and the heart um, of who you are is just beautiful, and I love it. The heart for worship, the heart for God's presence, to be with him, Um, it's clear and palpable, and a lot of that comes from your leadership, Alex and Emily, Andoni and Lorna, Jim and Kathy, amazing people that I love and respect. It feels so good to come here because there's so many faces and people that Jenny and I have done life with and um, people that we love. So I wanna begin with just a short word of testimony. I, I think as you read Paul's letters, He's constantly telling one church what's happening in another region. He's rejoicing in what's happening here while he's pouring in um, in another space. And so I just, as I've reflected over the past year, I looked at 2022, I just made a list and then shared with our community, many of my communities here today, and they reflect a lot of this. But this has been, for me and I think for our church and our community, just a, a year of incredible renewal of hunger for God. And I've seen people coming alive in all kinds of different spheres, but one of the most exciting for me has been my peers who are middle-aged, people in their 40s and 50s coming alive in hunger for God. And I brought some of them here with us to do some prayer ministry, uh, to pass on some of what they're experiencing. But there have just been so many that have been coming alive in hunger for God, for prayer, worship, for justice, it's been absolutely amazing. And as you know, quick update, local politics in Portland is failing. The public schools are teaching gender confusion, houselessness, totally unsolved. We're heading into a recession, and yet, in the midst of that, I'm seeing people joyfully compelled to greater intimacy and passion for Jesus and his mission than never before. You know, it's funny because I always wanted to be a missionary. We tried it, didn't work, came back. And then the other day I was driving around Portland. I was like, wait a minute. That's why I'm here, Lord. It's not for the great weather. It's not for this flourishing city. It's because you sent me here to be a light in a city on a hill. So I've just loved recounting in this past year these moments, these snapshots of God showing up, awakening hearts. Um, It's happened in my own wife. Just an incredible, beautiful awakening in my wife, Jenny. So much so that our girls, uh, high school and college age girls, this summer said to Jenny, we're hanging out together at the house, and they were like, man, mom, we knew you loved Jesus, but it seems like you really love Jesus. (laughs) That is one of the best moments of my year. We started a boiler room prayer, which is uh, every Sunday gathering when someone's 
preaching underneath, uh, I think this was from Spurgeon. Spurgeon had a team that went and prayed with them under the boiler room. We've started doing that, and, and it's been, for my community and my friends that are here, it's the highlight, is going down there to lean into wild and prophetic prayer on behalf of the person teaching and the room hearing. That's been a highlight. We've seen uh, a lot of retired folks and folks with gray hair like mine that have come, which has been newer to Bridgetown, but I look around here and I see that there's something generational that God's doing here as well. And that's a sign of the kingdom. It's fun to plant a church with a bunch of people in their 20s and maybe a few over 30, but it's something else when God starts to do this generational thing. And it reminds me of uh, what the Lord's put on my heart for this season, this Joel 2 kind of moment where men and women, young and old, are hearing from God, speaking out what they hear, and really creating a new destiny through the prophetic. And I think that's what's happening here, and I think we've been experiencing that as well. You know, and also just um, this last year, God has, uh, pierced my heart in compassion and excitement for Gen Z. If you're 25 or younger, um, I just think there's been, uh, it's a generation of incredible pain, but also of incredible promise. And I think there's a word for Gen Z around leadership that we'll get to later, but that's been something God's been speaking and doing in our midst. And then finally, um, I just look back over this year and see that God has broken our heart for the poor, and this awakening to, man, what does it look like to not just love and serve the poor, but actually become family, to become kin with our brothers and sisters that have had a different story, different socioeconomic background, different upbringing. And in, in, in that vein, we've seen our gatherings and our spaces become a bit more messy, which I think is actually how it's supposed to be. So as I look at this last year, for me, I just wanna give a testimony, which is a way of saying, do it again. And there has just been awakening, there's been movement, all in the midst of craziness, political turmoil, all of that kind of stuff. But God is good. And here's my question. So what about you? How has the past year, if you look back over this year, maybe you took a moment over the Christmas break and you reflected on the year. How's the year been for you? And maybe specifically, if you were to narrow it down to right now, this season that you're at, the season that you're in with the Lord, what's this season like? How's your hunger right now for God, for his kingdom? And what I wanna talk about today is how do we awaken heart and desire for God? But then not only that, how do we sustain it? How do we awaken it? But then how do we sustain it? And for that, would you stand with me and we're gonna turn to read 2 Samuel chapter six. If you have a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter six, I'm gonna read this out loud. Thank you for standing in honor of the scriptures as I read. 2 Samuel Chapter six, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up from Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of Yahweh Almighty, the one who's enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. 
they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. I speak professionally, but this is a tough one. Abinadab. I think I rushed it the first time. Which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, it's kind of like Ohio, but it's Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before Yahweh, with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. Skip ahead to verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of Yahweh had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before Yahweh with all his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of Yahweh with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of Yahweh was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of Yahweh and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before Yahweh. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people with the name of Yahweh Almighty. He gave them each a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to take home. He gave one to each of the crowd of the Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now when David returned to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, it was before Yahweh who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me to rule over Yahweh's people Israel. I will celebrate before Yahweh. I will become even more dignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls whom you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, a lot there. The little bit of background. All of this is taking place during a dark time in Israel. Israel said, you know what, God? You said you'll be our king, but we want a, a man to rule in Israel like in the other nations. So they got what they asked for. They got Saul. And if you know anything about Saul, he rejected the word of the Lord. He was the one that abandoned the ark of the Lord, the very presence of God. He left it out in the hill country, abandoned and neglected. I mean, think about that for a minute. This is the ark of the Lord, the very presence where God is gonna reside. And Saul didn't care for it. This time was marked by intense pride and self-sufficiency in Israel and their leadership. They became a culture where they basically said, we don't need God's help. We got this. And right in the midst of that, a time of injustice, neglect of the word of the Lord, in the middle of that, David is forming and developing out in the hillside, taking care of sheep as this young man, God, is discipling himself, this future leader. David, 
a young man marked by humility and hunger for God, an exact opposite, a foil character to who Saul is. So David's chosen by king, but has to, to be king, but has to wait for seven years out in the hill country, tending sheep. For seven years, he waits until his day of inauguration when he gets to become king. And you can only imagine that while he's out there on the hillside, he's dreaming, he's praying, he's having visions of, Lord, what will it be like the day when I can finally come in to Jerusalem and you will establish me as king? Now, think about that for a minute. When a new president comes into office in our country, the first thing they do, the first order that they make is a big deal. So David, has had seven years to think about this, seven years to dream about my moment, to make a statement, to make defining laying in the sand. Here's what we're about. Here's the momentum and the direction that we're gonna go in. So David is preparing for his inauguration, his opening act as king, and then the day the, they finally comes. Now, I can only imagine his meeting with his strategist to plan for this. And this is probably how it went. He's like, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the Ark of the Covenant and we're gonna bring it into the city. And the way we're gonna do that is, we're gonna hire thousands and thousands and thousands of worshipers. We're gonna get musicians, singers, as many as we can for this moment. Then we're gonna take the Ark, put it right in the center of the city square, we're gonna remove the veil, put it in a tent so it's accessible to all, and then we're gonna hire these musicians, not only to come in, but then for night and day, they're gonna worship and make music and sing in the center of the city. And guys, it's gonna cost all of the national treasury. <laughs> Now, I'm sure his advisors thought this was a little extreme, right? You can only hear someone saying, well, what about building up the military? What about economic stimulus? The people are suffering. But David was convinced of his plan. He was convinced that God was worth it. This was a massive act of extravagant worship. Like the woman who pours out the alabaster on Jesus' feet. This was costly, extravagant worship. And if you think about it, David had seen, as all of Israel had, and they had experienced what it had been like to have a man rule over Israel. And David is saying in this act, now we're gonna reestablish Yahweh as king. This is the dawn of an entirely new era. See, they're gonna crown Yahweh as the king of glory, the king of their nation again. And you see this in David's heart in Psalm 22 when he talks about God being enthroned on the praises of his people. In other words, David believed as they had nonstop night and day prayer as the center of the city that as they did that, God would be welcomed there and he would choose to be enthroned on their praises. Now, isn't this fascinating? Just pause for a moment. Think about just a few minutes ago, as we were worshiping and singing and declaring in here that Jesus is Lord. We were honoring the name 
of Jesus in here. And as we do that, as we declare his worth, honor, and his praise, he is present among us. Isn't that funny? I was reading the, uh, the story of the Vineyard Church and John Wimber talked about, he said it was so amazing that as we lifted up the name of Jesus in praise, he responded every time with his presence. And isn't that it? We're worshiping together and then we sense God is in our midst. I think there's even some of what the Lord taught us to, pr to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As we declare our Father in heaven as holy, his will is done in that place of praise. It's beautiful. We create heaven on earth as we praise. And I think David knew this. He wanted this environment of prayer and praise 24-7. So as people went about their daily life in Jerusalem, they would hear the praises coming out of the tent. Think about that for a minute. As merchants were buying and selling, as kids were playing in the streets and on the hillsides, as David and his government officials were conducting official business in the palace, they could hear the worship. I mean, imagine walking around the city, your city, and hearing worshipers constantly in the background, falling asleep to the praise coming out of that tent. So what was David's political, military strategy? What was his government platform and foundation? God's presence through constant praise. So putting God's dwelling in the center of daily life, reestablishing Yahweh as the center and king over everything. And think again about our nation today. There's threats of companies laying off workers, teetering on the edge of recession, we have a deeply divided nation. You hear so much talk about, yeah, maybe things have resolved, but there's another election cycle. 2024 is coming. Americans seem more angry at one another than ever before. But what would happen in our country, in our churches, if we recentered our entire being? on God's presence again? What if we lived like God was truly among us night and day, and all throughout the day, we came in alignment with his will. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, what do you wanna do in this situation? What do you wanna say to this person? And I think David is sharing this secret with us through the pages of scripture, through his life today. And here it is, if you're taking notes, Write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. If you put God and his glory at the center, everything else falls into place. If you put God and his glory at the center, everything else falls into place. Because before David was king, he was a worshiper. Think about it. He had grown in his heart for God on the hillside, writing poems and songs and worship amongst sheep. And now, David's private prayers and poems would be the national worship songs yeah. for Israel. 
And so we see his heart. I mean, think about the Psalm 27, cry of David's heart. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. David's heart and mind was shaped around this one thing, the best thing, God's beauty. He was obsessed with it. And now he's inviting all of Israel into this, come into this face-to-face encounter with the living God. So when David enters Jerusalem in this moment, he's an absolute contrast to King Saul, his predecessor. He comes in an act of humility, dancing before the Lord in the priest's undergarments. And what he's saying in that, what is that move all about? Isn't a king supposed to come in with royal garb and be crowned and enthroned and pomp and all of that? No, David's making this statement. He's saying, I am not the king, Yahweh is. He's saying, I am first and foremost a priest and a worshiper. And in this act, he's calling Israel back to their original identity from Exodus 19, when God spoke over them and said, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. And David, as he wears the priestly undergarment, is making that statement publicly at the beginning of his reign. Now, of course, not everybody's gonna be on board with this. Not everybody is gonna agree with this undignified worship expression. This worship dance is foolish, and his own wife, Michael is embarrassed with her husband. But David believed in being a holy fool for God. He believed God was worth it. He confronted her, or excuse me, when confronted by her, he didn't back down. And by the way, the trajectory of her life and the trajectory of his, the very next chapter says, after this massive moment, The Lord gave David and Israel rest from all their enemies on all sides. So David was making this prophetic act, calling all to come worship and enter into God's presence. And later, Jesus picks up on this as he goes into the temple and says, all are welcome. My father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. Now listen, friends, Saints Hill family. We need a center of gravity in our lives that's greater than our career, our hobbies, our families, or our next vacation. We need something of much greater mass to pull together all the planets of our life. David ordered his life around the most weighty reality in the universe, God's glory and presence. And so we have to ask, like if we push into that just a little bit, what did David actually see in the tent? What what was it that he was so obsessed with? And I think that it's the same thing that Jacob saw when he went up the ladder, or the same vision that Ezekiel saw, or Isaiah saw, or the disciples saw when Jesus was transfigured before them. I think it's the same thing that John on the Isle of Patmos saw and described in the Revelation. God in his absolute radiant 
glory. There is a greater reality than what we see in the natural, visible world. You see, the Western scientific rational worldview is constantly wearing down faith because it wants you to believe that you can only believe in what you see. But the worldview of Jesus and the scriptures says that there's an invisible and unseen world all around us that is real, if not more real, than what we can see. Now, do you remember this moment? Elisha and his servant, it's 2 Kings chapter six. And Elisha's with his servant, his servant's like, well, I guess this is it, we're surrounded by the enemy, this is it, we might as well pray our last prayer. And Elisha prays this prayer for his servant. Lord, would you open his eyes? And suddenly, Elisha's servant's eyes are opened and he sees that there's an angelic mass of warriors surrounding them. Here's the enemy, and then around the enemy is the Lord's warriors. And I believe that that is a paradigm for what we need today. We need to ask God to open our eyes so that we can truly see what is real. Because there's seeing, then there's actually seeing. And you know, what's been helpful for me is to raise my eyes through this Revelation 4 vision. You know, I was, I was meditating on the Revelation 4 vision of Jesus, the lamb that was slain, the four living creatures, the elders, the multitudes. I was like, this is amazing. I sat with my friend who's an actual legit Bible scholar, and I was like, Tim, Revelation 4, is that like, was that a moment, a snapshot in history that John saw on the Isle of Patmos, just that vision? Or is that an ongoing heavenly reality? And he like paused and rubbed his chin like a scholar and was like, well, Gerald, the academics are all in agreement on this. This is the ongoing reality of heaven. And so I've been obsessed with that. Think about that for a minute. That throne room scene, the lamb that was slain, surrounded by these living creatures with eyes all over. And why do they have all those eyes? I have no idea. But maybe, it's, it's weird, there's probably you know, 50 different theories on it, but maybe it's the more that they see of God's glory, the more they're able to respond. It's really about sight. Even John says, he was caught up in a vision, a door was open in heaven, and he saw. So there's something about this reality of Jesus enthroned in heaven that we're invited to see. And see, all the saints and the mystics have known this over the years, that the center of all reality is a person, a loving, compassionate person, Jesus. And when we become aware of the eternal glory of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. When we turn down the noise on everything else around us, all the distractions, and seek his face, we can encounter the most beautiful, captivating, the lamb that was slain, the one that the elders, the creatures, the multitude of every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they never stop singing, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. But how do we keep that reality before us? We can come to church, 
collectively bring our faith together and agree in a moment. Yes, that is true. Yes, that is real. I want to see that. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So how do we keep this reality before us? Is there a practice of Jesus and even the ancient early church where they were able to keep this ongoing vision, the presence of Jesus? I mean, we don't have the tent of David. We don't have an ark in the center. Maybe you do. Newburgh is, you know, unique. Maybe you have that in the center of downtown. We certainly do not in Portland. We can't walk downtown and hear the 24-7 worship and praise. We don't go to bed. We don't go throughout our day hearing the worship emanating out of the tent of David. So how then do we, in the words of Paul, pray without ceasing, stay aware and connected, constantly connected, desperately dependent to Jesus? How do we do that? Well, David couldn't spend all night and day in the tent either, remember? He had to go do some kind of executive functions as king, and then he would come back in there for worship, then he'd go back, right? But what we see in the life of David and in ancient Israel, and I think even in the early New Testament church, is a daily prayer rhythm. Listen to what David says in Psalm 55. He says, as for me, I call to the Lord and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. Now the Jewish day starts at sundown. So David starts with evening. And what I think he's saying is that three times a day, David would stop to reconnect back into God's presence in prayer. Consider Daniel, who kept this sacred rhythm of prayer even when taken into Babylonian captivity. Look at Daniel chapter six. Now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So could it be that with David and Daniel, there was this rhythm, these fixed times of prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. And think about Jesus came into an age in Judaism that was deeply shaped by this prayer rhythm. This practice, I think, actually shaped Jesus as well. As he comments on these hours of prayer, he refers to the hypocrites who conveniently find themselves in a public place for their afternoon prayer. That's why in Matthew 5, he says this, and when you pray, do not do it like the hypocrites, for they love standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Now notice, he's not criticizing them for meeting to pray or even for praying outside with others, but the heart motivation to be seen in their prayers. Now think about this. Have you ever wondered how in the book of Acts, they would gather by the thousands at seemingly in a moment's notice with no cell phones and no Twitter. How did they do that? I think it was because they were in this daily fixed rhythm of prayer. They had times where they knew they would meet at the temple courts because they did it every day. We see this in Acts chapter three, one last one. Look at this, Acts chapter three, really interesting. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. When was that? Luke says, at three in the afternoon. So maybe there's something for us 
to rediscover in this today. Maybe there's a way to stay connected to God by ordering our days not around mealtimes, not around work schedule, but what if our days were actually fixed and ordered around times to connect into God's presence in prayer? It seems to be this might be a practice of Jesus and the early church that we've never learned. And maybe this is just a simple step and invitation for us today. What would that look like? We've been doing this thing as a team where we set alarms on our phone. Morning's kind of easy. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know about waking up in the morning, giving that time to the Lord. But the afternoon time in our office, we set an alarm for 1 p.m. and we gather at 1 p.m. in the kind of the center of the church office. And that's specifically a time in the afternoon that we've set to praying for the lost. So every day at 1 p.m., the alarm goes off, we gather, and it's like a three-minute prayer, and someone takes turns leading it. And oftentimes, it's got a couple rhythms to it. It's like, Lord, thank you for your compassion. Give me the compassion that you have for the lost. Second movement could be as short as, God, who are the people in my life that are far from you? God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you awaken them to your presence right now? Would you bring to mind something that they would draw to know you, Jesus, even in this moment. And then the third movement is maybe like, and now, God, would you send us out to be the answer to our prayers? Something as simple as that. So what we're doing is morning, beginning with the Lord's Prayer, afternoon prayer is prayer for the lost, and then finally, evening is a prayer of gratitude. And I've developed a practice that's really easy for me. When I leave in my car from our office parking lot at the end of the day, as I'm driving out of the parking lot, that is triggered in now my muscle memory and my DNA to give thanks for the days, that, all the things that happen in the office, all the things that God is doing. And then it's also, for me, this sounds weird, it's a cutting away. I'm like, Lord, I'm going home now. I'm not going back to work. <laughs> I'm going home, keep me from my phone and my email. I'm going home to like be done with the day. Morning, afternoon, evening. But you know, there could be even a more simple step, just a super practical one. This last year, as I look at it for me, has had these beautiful moments of turning my car and my daily commute to the office and home from the office into my own little temple. And when I get in, I've got my playlist, I've got Upper Room, I've got Jeremy Riddle's new album, you guys heard that, Live from the Prayer Room? Holy smokes, it's revelation, the whole thing. It's phenomenal. So that is my sacred temple. I get in the car and I'm driving up over the Markham Bridge and I'm looking down at the city of Portland and I'm praying for a revelation of God's glory. God, the same thing that the angels see in the heavenlies right now, may Portland awaken to that. And so for me, that simple step of not listening to other music and not listening to the news, turns out I'm not missing hardly anything. <laughs> but instead, turning, in, turning that drive into a time of worship, so when I feel like it and when I don't, that has helped me, that practice has helped me to live in light of this greater reality. So Jesus, our prayer and our ask is, God, would you awaken our hearts and minds? Would you awaken Saints Hills Church? Would you awaken Newburgh to the reality of Jesus? God, would you open our eyes? Amen.
Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.